you're listening to Mysteries Beyond. What mysteries lie beyond the reach of our senses? And who are you in this vast multiverse? Hello and welcome to Mysteries Beyond. I'm your host, Laura Lavender. It's been a while, right? Oh, but it feels so good to be back. So, a couple of things have changed since last season, and I would really like to share those changes with you. Firstly, just to get this off my chest, and because it's also therapeutic for me, and because you guys are my audience, I'd like to share a personal change that I have undergone. I have recently been through a divorce. Now, granted, it wasn't as chaotic or as turbulent as the majority of them are, and it was fairly amicable. Regardless of that, it was still a huge change for me. It was certainly an opportunity for me to apply everything that I have learned and everything that I talk about with regards to spirituality. And it has affected me in all three planes of existence, as expected. It affected me mentally, so in the mental plane, because I had to grasp the idea that those dreams and hopes I once had with this other individual are no longer going to become a reality. So I had to change my perspective, change my dreams, change my goals in order to start focusing on myself and focusing on whatever it is that I would like to manifest. And trust me, it is easier said than done, at least for me, because when I got married, I got married with the mentality and the intention of till death do us part. And obviously, it was not the case. So it's a shock. It's a sort of cognitive dissonance, if you will, that I experienced. It affected me emotionally. So, I guess you could say on the spiritual plane, for obvious reasons, especially after a 16-year marriage. And so, in my case, there was a form of attachment that developed inevitably after such a long marriage, but that was something I had to overcome. And also, there's just a lot of emotions that come up right, that gets stirred and and come to the surface, there is a sort of grief that you go through, a level of intense sadness, because it's a chapter in your life that is now closed. It's a death, right, so you are grieving. And yes, with that death, obviously, comes the rebirth. But there was also anger, There was also jealousy, fear, 
and even happiness and a level of excitement because I don't know what the future holds, but it's exciting. It's the unknown. So all of those emotions at once that I had to sit with and process. And to be honest, I'm still processing. And of course it also affected me on the physical plane because I'm no longer physically with that person. That person no longer lives with me. I live by myself now. Well, my son and I, I consider my dog, my son, Tuffy. <laughs> but that was a huge change for me because it rattles your world, my world, inner and outer. I'm learning to do things on my own. Things I never had to do before because I had the help and support of this other person. And it certainly has been a challenge. But luckily for me, I study the esoteric and occult. And I know that it's a matter of perspective. So I was put to the test. And I am applying everything I have learned, at least everything that I can remember anyway, to my life. And I am just taking it day by day. And that's what it's about. As we continue on this journey, on this physical plane, this physical reality, we call life. And also, of course I had people tell me, well, you know, you do dabble in the occult. You do talk a lot about demons and Santa Muerte. You mess with them, and this is the chaos they bring into your life. And how did I respond to that, you might be wondering? Well, I simply smiled. But I was laughing inside. Because what makes them think it wasn't I who called upon them and asked for chaos and destruction in my life in order to start from scratch and rebuild my life? to live a better, happier, and more fulfilling one. I am aware of the severity. I am aware of the difficulty. I am aware of the consequences. And I will just leave it at that. So for everything that I am currently going through and that I am currently experiencing, I thank you guys so much for your patience and for your understanding. Now, for the next change, the next big change that you'll notice within the show is that instead of it being 15 to 20 minutes long, the show will now be about an hour long. And so for those of you who have been listening on Ground Zero Radio, you'll notice that the show has been an hour long However, it's been cut in sections. So you were listening to three different episodes at once. Well, not at once, but within the hour. And from now on, I'm hoping to be able to do one episode for the entire hour long. So I'll try to stick to one theme 
per hour, if that makes any sense. Which is also huge for me. It's a massive change for me because I don't consider myself much of a talker. I like to get to the point and give you guys the information that I find. So that is definitely part of my growth and a skill that I will have to develop rather quickly. And another change with regards to the show that I would like to inform you guys of is the implementation of astrology. What do I mean by that? All right, well, first I should state and establish that I do not proclaim to be an astrologer. However, I do know a thing or two about astrology. And recently, I've had people reach out to me and ask me if I could briefly go over their natal chart with them. And I'm always happy to do that because it gives me a little insight to their person. It helps me understand a little bit on how and why they operate the way that they do. And if I can give that person additional insight and or a different perspective on how and why they do certain things and or help them discover and realize that they have certain traits and or abilities that they can develop or further develop, then I feel like that's a really, really good thing. And you might be wondering, why is astrology so important to know? Well, astrology corresponds to that second hermetic principle, right? The, the principle of correspondence. As above, so below. The macrocosm and the microcosm. Everything that is happening in a macrocosm level is also happening in a microcosm level, and vice versa. It's mirroring. So it's the study of the heavens' influence upon Earth, upon us. And if we can become aware of what is happening on the outer world, then we can become aware of what is happening in our inner world and how these celestial bodies are influencing us. It's actually an ancient science, and our ancestors were more in sync to the Earth's rhythms, and they were able to make connections between the stars, the seasons, the tides, the harvests, and our personality traits. And there are these misconceptions that astrology can predict the future. And, well, I hate to break it to you, but it actually cannot. What it can do, however, it can help you see and understand the patterns between the heavens and you. And also, just because there is a full moon, for example doesn't mean 
it's going to make you act out and or become more emotional. I mean, don't get me wrong, it can. But a lot of the times we forget that we also have free will. And you also have your environment. So you've got your environment, your free will, and these planetary transits that are all coming into play. And so there are many factors that come into play. And because of this, and many other reasons, is why astrology is so complex. And again, why I do not proclaim to be an astrologer. But I do find it fascinating, and I would like to give it a shot, and provide you guys with the astrological news, the astrological forecast, if you will. And it's fun. It's something to look out for. Patterns to kind of watch out for. Alright, so let's give it a go. It will be your daily planetary forecast. Alright, so today is February 2nd. While the sun is currently in Aquarius, and it will be for the next couple of days. Okay, but what does that mean? Okay, well if you think about it this way, the sun is what gives light and what gives life. It's creation, the great creator. The sun represents our self-expression, and the position of the sun reveals to us how our light shines. It's basically how we project ourselves upon our family, friends, and society. And as I said, it's an Aquarius. Aquarius is known as the water barrier or the water carrier. And they are known to be the humanitarians of the zodiac signs. So in the most basic of terms, you might see a great majority of us focusing and putting our energy into helping others. So you might sense the energy around you be more of a devotion to a group interest. The, I guess you could say the only downside to that would be no matter the personal cost. So you might see people rebel a little more and speak up if they truly believe it's what's best for the group. <laughs> Astrology is so fun and so fascinating to me, and there's so much that we can dive and go deep into, but I'm just going to try my best to give you guys the brief overview. Oh, and before we move on, Aquarius is also an air sign which deals with the intellect. So think about innovation. So that, that kind of energy. All right, so moving on to the moon. The moon is in Scorpio. The moon deals with intuition, emotions, and what makes you feel safe. So what makes you feel at home? And if it's in Scorpio, well, Scorpio is the sign of passion, desire, and transformation. Because it's co-ruled with Pluto, the planet of death, decay, transformation, it ventures into the dark and forbidden. It's also associated to power. So there is that power play, that power struggle. And Scorpio is also a water sign, 
So you may be feeling a bit emotional, a bit passionate, and you may be feeling a bit more deeply. For example, for me personally, whenever the moon is in Scorpio, I've noticed, I've tracked that I usually end up feeling a bit vengeful, like I want to retaliate if anybody wrongs me or if I notice anybody speaking to me disrespectfully and I have to apply that self-discipline and self-control. But here are two planetary transits and aspects that are happening today that stand out. The first is Mercury trine Neptune. That's a good thing. It means they, they get along. They are easygoing, easyflowing. So Mercury is how we think. It deals with the intellect. Neptune rules the seas of our subconscious. It deals with our inner realm, our dreams. So it stimulates our creativity, our imagination, and spirituality. So it's ideal, <laughs> pun intended, to tap into that energy and bring it down to earth also known as manifesting. And that circles perfectly back to our first hermetic principle of mentalism, the all is mind, because that's exactly where it starts, in the mind. So really think about what you're dreaming and daydreaming about. What do you want to create? What do you want to accomplish? So I would say, Allow yourself to dream today so that you can make it a reality. The second aspect is Jupiter trine Saturn. This aspect is really interesting because Jupiter is the planet of expansion, of more. And Saturn is the planet of limitation, so less. Jupiter deals with expansion, wisdom, understanding, abundance, luck, growth, and optimism. Saturn deals with tradition, discipline, and structure. These planets are the complete opposite of each other. But when they are in trine, it means they are creating a harmonious and supportive aspect. So, to put it simply, how I would interpret this aspect is that it is a favorable time, maybe long-term planning, or maybe implementing a new routine into your life. You know, something that requires more discipline and or structure. So maybe making the time to read more or eating healthier or working out. Maybe I'm projecting because those are the first things that come to my mind. But ultimately, it's an ideal time for achieving balance in, in perhaps different areas of your life. At least that's how I interpret it. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this little segment. And if you guys feel like adding anything or if you think I may have missed something, 
you know, do not hesitate. Please feel free to give me some feedback. I'd actually appreciate it. But alright. Moving on to our topic of the day. Exorcisms gone wrong. And I know, I know, you're probably wondering, how else could it get any worse? I mean, you are at the stage of requiring an exorcism. What else could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, let's talk about it. Okay, so let's briefly recap. What is an exorcism? Well, the definition is the expulsion or attempted expulsion of a supposed evil spirit from a person or place. So, in simplest terms, it's a religious or spiritual practice for the purpose of basically evicting demons or other energies from a person and or a place or an area that is believed to be possessed. Oh, and as a bonus, exorcism comes from the Greek word exorcismo, which means binding by oath. And also, let's keep in mind that in ancient times, it was believed that illnesses, natural disasters, or any series of unfortunate events were caused by demons and or bad or evil spirits. And the thing about demons is that although they are quote-unquote evil, they are still divine beings, right? They're God's creation. That being said, they can perform miracles and imitate divine interference. But why would they do that? Well, perhaps it could be strategic. Maybe they have a plan of action that they'll need to use you for in the future for their own gain. So a very simple example of this that I can think of comes from a movie. It comes from the movie Constantine. And yes, I know it's fictional, but the example is still a good one, so humor me. Honestly, it's one of my favorite movies that I never get tired of rewatching. And there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen it, maybe fast forward a couple minutes. And if you're listening to this live, then I I don't know what to tell you other than sorry. So in the movie, John Constantine is terminally ill, right? He's got lung cancer because he smokes. But towards the end, as he's about to die, Lucifer replaces his failing lungs with healthy ones so that John may live. And this is because he wants his soul. So he's going to give him an opportunity to fail, to ultimately give in to demon's influence to the point where his soul is damned to hell. So miracles can be performed by saints angels, and demons. The only thing is, science can't prove it. And they also can't technically prove possession. 
And there are certain precautions that even the Vatican has put into place. One of those being a psychiatric evaluation, you know, to rule out any and all other possibilities. And there are also telltale signs, such as speaking other languages, especially ancient languages like Latin, or any other language that the individual wouldn't know. Also, there's the aversion to sacred and or holy items and knowledge. If that individual is spouting out and revealing secrets, sins of others, that they would have no way of knowing, then that would be a telltale sign that someone is possessed. But what else could go wrong in an exorcism? Well, you see, although it's not a punishment and it's considered a cure for the victim, exorcisms are known to be extremely violent, at least in the most severe of cases. And that's where the line begins to blur. The first story I'd like to share with you guys involves a two-year-old child, and it doesn't have a pleasant ending. So, this is your warning, in case you're sensitive to that. Alright, so this is the story of Benjamin Aparicio. His parents, Araceli and Daniel Meza, ran a church called Iglesia Internacional Jesús es el Rey. Apparently, it was an evangelical church, and it was ran out of a brick home in the suburbs of Dallas. And of course, it was ran by, at the time, 52-year-old Araceli, who was also believed to be a prophet by members of the church. Yeah, that's, that's the first red flag for me. Well, in my opinion, anyway. So apparently, that was their house, but it was also their church. And more people live there as well. And everybody there turned to Araceli for guidance and direction because she claimed that she received messages directly from God. And also she had experience in casting out demons from other people, but other people who were adults. And so apparently she received a message from God, directly from God, who told her that her boy needed to fast because he was possessed by a demon of manipulation. I mean, the child was two years old. Even if he were crying and throwing tantrums, that just sounds like standard behavior for a toddler. But because she truly believed this to be true, she made her child fast for 21 days. That is absolutely extreme and inhumane. And this child was only given water four or five times a day. Oh, and if he failed to say amen, then he would even be deprived of water. I'm reading this from the Washington Post, and it says that 
the boy was reduced to skin and bones, and that he was unable to lift his head towards his last days. The thing was, if anyone questioned Araceli, she would respond by saying, the devil is speaking through you. And after those 21 days passed, she said that God told her he could eat again. However, by that time, Benjamin was too weak. And unfortunately, he wasn't taken to a hospital to get the proper medical care he needed. Instead, Araceli held what she called a resurrection ceremony, where she just basically prayed to God to give Benjamin the strength he needed. And unfortunately, during that ceremony, Benjamin died. What was also disturbing about this was that they recorded the ceremony and they live-streamed it. After Benjamin's passing, they buried his body, and both his parents fled. It's such a tragedy, because had this child been taken to a hospital, he may have survived and lived. In the end, Araceli was sentenced to 99 years in prison, and was also ordered to pay $10,000 in fines. The assistant district attorney, Patrick Capetillo, told the jurors that Benjamin's death was the result of Araceli's desire for control, not her faith or religion. Benjamin's incident happened in March of 2015. This next story that I'm about to share with you guys happened in 1974, but it's equally as horrifying and disturbing. It's the exorcism of Michael Taylor. These events took place in Yorkshire, England, in the small town of Osset, and it all happened in the year 1974, just one year after the film The Exorcist was released. I'm not saying there's any relation to that, but it could be what helped influence give rise to exorcisms, especially around that time. 31-year-old Michael Taylor and his 29-year-old wife Christine had five sons between the ages of 6 and 12, and they were known to have a loving home and be happily married. Michael was a manual laborer and was known to be a butcher. However, in the beginning of 1974, he suffered an injury, a back injury, to be more specific, which prevented him from working long hours and physical hours. And unfortunately, he struggled to find another job. So the tailors, who had been living comfortably up until then, began to struggle financially. And because of that, Michael fell into a depression. Now, the tailors weren't known to be as religious. But their neighbor introduced them to a church group. She told them that it wasn't your traditional place of worship and that this group was not stuck up. And I'm sure the tailors considered it and thought that it might help them get through this tough time in their lives. 
And so they ended up agreeing and attending a Bible study group with their neighbor just to check it out. And well, that was all it took. They instantly felt very welcomed and had a sense of belonging. And so this group was called the Christian Fellowship Group. And it wasn't your traditional Christian place of faith. In fact, it kind of veered off a bit from that. Well, you see, they were more focused on the on the supernatural aspects of the Bible. Modern music was used in worship. Their sermons were more emotional. They practiced speaking in tongue. And they practiced faith healing. So basically, this community offered the tailors a place to be seen, a place to be heard, a place to be valued. But above all, it offered hope, which seemed to be exactly what this family needed during that time. And so there, they met the preacher by the name of Marie Robinson. And it just so happened that as some time went by, Michael and Marie grew to be very close rather quickly. And because she encouraged Michael to become more involved in the church, he soon began to volunteer at group meetings and basically engaged in all activities. He also even began to speak in tongues and was known to host many Bible study groups at his own home. And well, naturally, Michael's wife, Christine, became rather suspicious and extremely concerned about Michael and Marie's close relationship to the point where Christine actually accused them in one of their Bible study groups in their own home of their relationship having turned carnal in nature. So when Christine confronted them about it, obviously they denied it. So the group actually suggested that Michael and Marie talk things out in private. Excuse me for interjecting here, but you would think that the group would suggest husband and wife talk things out in private, but no. I'm trying to make sense of it. So maybe the group believed that because Marie was their leader, per se, and Michael was apparently her right hand, they probably thought it was best for them to talk things out in private about how they could best approach and tackle this situation and come back to the group with a perfect example and answer. I don't know. That's just, that's just me. But anyway, apparently, (laughs) apparently they went upstairs where Michael opened up about his feelings for her and even tried to kiss her. But Marie rejected his advances. And then Michael, very cleverly in my opinion, declared that that situation had been a victory for the Lord. And so they went back downstairs, addressed the group, and told them that 
a miracle had happened, that they had both overcome their passions, and that that tension that they had for each other and those feelings that they had for each other had just simply evaporated. Everything seemed perfectly fine, but in that moment, Michael's attitude changed. Marie described it as a sinister transformation, like something had entered his body, and then he began to hit her and scream at her hysterically. Afterwards, Michael claimed that he could not remember anything regarding the attack. He only said he felt an evil force take over. And so while Marie was being attacked, she began to speak in tongues and say the name of Jesus. And she firmly believed that because she called on his name, she was not killed that day. The following day, Marie went to go visit the Taylors at their home. Christine was hesitant and didn't want to let her go inside. She felt that it'd be better to keep Michael and Marie apart for the time being. But Marie insisted because she wanted to tell Michael that all was forgiven. So they ended up having a short visit, and Marie told Michael that all was forgiven and that the church wouldn't hold anything against him, and that they could go on as usual. And everything seemed okay for just a small amount of time. Because after that, Michael's behavior quickly became erratic. He was filled with anger and wrath and turned it all against all religious things, even to the point where he destroyed all of the Bibles and religious books in his house. And he was easily annoyed, especially by his wife and his children. People said they saw him kneeling out in the street in front of his house, shouting. Michael even told his neighbors he had seen the devil. His mental health was evidently deteriorating. He also apparently developed a paralyzing fear of the moon, and Marie tried to help him, but failed. And after having witnessed all of this, the church group believed that Michael's behavior was a red flag, and they were convinced that he had become possessed by the devil. And so, what do you do when you find out someone's possessed by the devil? Well, you perform an exorcism, of course. And so, the church group believed that the only way forward now was to perform an exorcism. And so they called on Father Peter Vincent, a local Angelican priest. Apparently, he had experience in exorcisms, and he agreed to meet with Michael. And so when he asked Michael why he had attacked Marie, Michael claimed that she had tried to seduce him in front of his wife, and that he also believed that she had bewitched him somehow. And she caused him to become possessed. And here's another interesting point. Father Vincent's wife, Sally, agreed that Marie was most likely the cause for his possession and that she herself 
had become suspicious of that beautiful young blonde preacher and was concerned about her effect on the men in the congregation. And apparently that's all it took. And Father Vincent was convinced and agreed that Michael was indeed the victim of a demonic possession. And it's also rumored that Sally was obsessed with demonic possession, and it was actually she who pushed for an exorcism. So things took a turn, and apparently Marie was accused of being connected with a satanic cult, and that she was basically a wolf in sheep's clothing. Michael's wife, Christine, however, wasn't so sure about the exorcism. She just felt that they really needed a break from the church. And she even told her neighbor that they no longer wished to be a part of the fellowship and basically gave her a heads up that they weren't going to be attending meetings anymore. And because Michael had this irrational fear of the moon, on one particular night, as soon as it began to get dark, and the moon was up, he started to go off about the moon. And Michael and Christine spent the night downstairs, sitting, making the cross over each other to keep each other safe. You know, I find it interesting that his case really highlights this. His irrational fear of the moon and the fact that he wasn't able to sleep. So maybe he really was sensitive to the moon's energy. I mean, there are studies that have been done that show that there is an increase in crime rate, and even hospitals seem to be fuller around those days. I mean, this is going to sound kind of out there, (laughs) and I'm aware of it, but whenever there is a full moon... If I happen to go outside and stare at it, or if the moonlight touches me, I have a really difficult time sleeping. My grandmother had this as well. I either end up falling asleep really late, or I end up tossing and turning all night. And you know what? It could be. It it could very well be self-suggested. You know, the power of suggestion. But it is what it is. But back to Michael's story. So Michael was now suffering from sleep deprivation. And by the way, did you guys know that 24 hours of sleep deprivation can actually have similar symptoms to those of schizophrenia? I believe sleep deprivation is also another form of torture. But anyway, on the night of October 5th, after many sleepless nights... Michael and Christine left their children with their grandparents, and that's because they were going to get that exorcism done. And so once they met with Father Vincent, he explained that he would be the one to take the lead, and he would be supported by his wife Sally. But even before the exorcism actually began, Michael was already becoming very agitated and apparently he threw his tea at Father Vincent's face and kicked the clergyman's cat. And typically, a Christian exorcism 
usually consist of a Catholic priest wearing his purple stole, reciting prayers, possibly sprinkling some holy water, making the sign of the cross, etc. However, in Michael's case, he started the ritual immediately being tied down. And according to everyone present there, Michael began to convulse. He spat, he foamed at the mouth, he growled and scratched like an animal. And that's why he had to be tied down. And and that's fine, right? Like, okay, he's tied down. All right. But he also wore a wooden crucifix around his neck, which was set on fire by the team of self-appointed exorcists. They screamed at him, they covered him in holy water, and they even shoved wooden crosses into his mouth, basically forcing Michael to confess his sins and sins that he had been accused of that he had not actually committed. At one point, he somehow managed to get out of his restraints, and he tried to escape, but the group caught him and restrained him again, and apparently they were casting out many demons, listing them as they went, so bestiality, incest, blasphemy, and this continued throughout the entire day, all through the night. And the group was convinced that they had casted out over 40 demons in total. They did, however, believe that Michael still had three other demons residing within him. One of those demons being the demon of murder. But everyone was tired and it was time to take a break, so they untied Michael and allowed him to go home. Yeah, do you think Michael was okay after all of that? Mm, Yeah, no. In fact, Father Vincent called the police and advised him to take Michael to the hospital. But, of course, they didn't do that either. Father Vincent was even concerned for Christine's safety and felt that someone should have gone home with her to protect her. But they didn't follow through with that either. So, Michael and Christine went home. Around 10 a.m. on the morning of October 6, 1974, a concerned resident called the police to inform them that a naked man covered in red paint was wandering the streets. Officers located said man and confirmed it was Michael Taylor. And he was not covered in paint. It was blood. They briefly inspected Michael's body and found no injuries that could explain all of that amount of blood. This is a quote from Michael. They primed me for it last night. They tried to bring me peace of mind, but instead they filled me with the devil. It was within her. Oh God, it used her, it used my love. I destroyed the evil within her. It had to be done. Oh hell, I love that woman. No, please God, no, please God. And when they asked Michael if he had hurt someone, and if that blood on him was someone else's blood, Michael responded by saying, It's the blood of Satan, it's the blood of Satan, and repeated this over and over and over. 
the ambulance took Michael away. And when those officers arrived at Michael's house, they found another police vehicle parked outside in the front. The scene at the Taylor's house was so gruesome and disturbing that it would haunt the investigators for many years to come. It was so bad that officers came out of the house heaving and vomiting. Flesh, actual flesh and blood covered the walls, the floor, the furniture. The entire house was covered in blood. Christine's body was found in the living room and it was next to the mutilated body of their family dog. Christine's face had been torn off. Her eyes were gouged out. Her tongue had been ripped out of her mouth and discarded. The dog's eyes were also gouged out. His legs had been pulled out of their sockets, hair, teeth, and everything removed from the skull. And this is a direct quote from Officer Walker. Of all the incidents in which I was involved in 30 years of police work, nothing affected me like this one. The stupidity and futility of it all, the complete and utter waste of life, destruction of a family, not to mention the death and other traumas, are far beyond anything else I have come across. Before this event, I was agnostic. Now, an atheist. One positive thing out of this entire event was that their children were at their grandparents' house, so they didn't get to witness any of this. Christine's autopsy concluded that she had died due to asphyxiation, most likely inhaling her own blood. And as awful as her death was, it's believed that she went quickly. Michael was arrested at the hospital and was taken in for questioning. And he told the officers about his exorcism that was performed. And when they asked Michael how he felt after the murder, he said, released. I am released. It is done. The evil in her has been destroyed. Michael's trial took place in 1975, and he never did any prison time. He was found guilty, but he was sent to the psych ward for psychiatric treatment. In the years after Christine's death, however, Michael was reported to have attempted suicide on four separate occasions. Once slitting his wrist, jumping off a bridge, and on another occasion, he seriously injured his legs and his back. And in 2005, Michael was found guilty again, but this time for the indecent touching of a young teenage girl. He was sent to prison, but because he began to display the same strange behavior as he did back in 1974, the court ruled that he needed to receive psychiatric treatment again and left prison for the psych ward. So how can an exorcism possibly get any worse? Well, there's always that possibility of death. 
This is why exorcisms are so dangerous. Not only is it because of the physical extremes that the victim undergoes, you know, with them having to be tied down, beaten, starved, and that's just the physical abuse. What about all that mental abuse that they undergo? And not just the victim, but also the family. And it's really difficult to deem someone as possessed. That's why in 1999, the Vatican actually added that step of, you know, that requirement of having a psychiatric evaluation performed to rule out any and all other possibilities. Because a lot of the times, that's what it is. It's mental illness. And in these two cases, if I were to give my personal opinion, do I believe that possession took place? Yes. But not so much on the victim, who in these cases were Benjamin and Michael. I think there might have been many demons lurking around, influencing and possessing the group, though. It's kind of like that psychological experiment. I forget the name of it, but it's basically where a group of people collectively decide on a course of action, even though some individuals don't particularly agree with it. They just go with it for fear of being left out or for fear of being different or being cast out. Or it could also be because this particular these particular groups of people really wanted to believe in something religious and supernatural. They really wanted to see something happen. And they did. They basically manifested that. Either way, possessions are scary. But not so much because of the demons, but rather because of the people. But let me know what you guys think about this topic of exorcisms gone wrong. Share your thoughts with me, because I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say. And or if you know of any other cases that you think I should look into. And you know, before we go, I'd, I'd like to take a little bit of time and, and give some shoutouts. I'll only use first names because, well, it's just safer and better this way. <laughs> Unless you guys message me and tell me directly that it's okay to use your full name, then, then I'll go ahead and do so. But first on the list is Jonathan. Thank you so much for reaching out and sending me that link to that YouTube video. I, honestly, I still have to watch it, but it did catch my attention. And Jason for also reaching out and suggesting a really cool topic on magic. I don't want to give too much away on these topics because eventually I do want to make an episode on them, so we'll just leave it at that for now. And Cindy, at the time of this recording, I just received your messages and I have yet to look into them. Thing is, when I receive your guys' messages, I really like to take my time and read them carefully and give it the time that it deserves because you guys reached out to me. You know, you guys took time out of your busy schedules to 
to reach out. So in return, I'd like to do the same and respond with, well, as best as I can. And also Ariel. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Or Ariel. I think it's Ariel. A-E. You're awesome. (laughs) You use the speak pipe and that is something that I keep forgetting to mention. But guys, there is that option if you go to the website www.mysteriesbeyond.com. It's on the homepage. If you just scroll a little bit further, you'll see an orange link that you can click and you can record a message and I'll play it here on the show. So here is Ariel's message. Hi, Lara. Lavender. Viva Mexico. Que viva. <laughs> I mean, you guys send me your message and I'll play it, no matter what it is. As long as it's not... How do I word this? Intentionally offensive. And there aren't any curse words. And with that, I will end this episode. <laughs> So if you guys have any questions or if there are any comments or if there is any feedback or simply anything that you guys have that you'd like to share with me, you can reach me at lauralavender.mb at gmail.com. Or you can also friend me on social media at Instagram at lauralavender.mb. And if you want to leave a message on SpeakPipe, you can also check out the website at www.mysteriesbeyond.com. And thank you guys again so much for your patience and understanding and for supporting the podcast by listening to Mysteries Beyond. I'm your host, Laura Lavender, and I'll see you guys next episode.